You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. If you will, to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. Dr. Rogers will be continuing his series in After Death What next week. He's been away this week, but looking this morning at this tremendous chapter of John, chapter 9, reading the entire chapter, so follow with me as we give heed to God's word. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world." Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This this word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He he answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Father, give us eyes to see Jesus Christ. Help us to understand your word. We pray for the Spirit to dwell powerfully in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1882, in a small town in Alabama, a 19-year-old little girl became seriously ill. The illness did not last for long, but to her parents' great grief, they found that their little girl had been left both blind and deaf as a result of the illness. Of course, this little girl, as many of you probably guess, was Helen Keller, a girl who would fight hard to learn to communicate in her life and who would become an inspirational example to the world of overcoming adversity. It is interesting to hear how Helen Keller describes her world before she could really communicate with anyone. She describes the day at age six when she first met Anne Sullivan, who would become her teacher and lifelong friend. Helen Keller writes these words about that day. Have you ever been at sea in a dense fog when it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in and the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way toward the shore with plummet and sounding line? And you waited with beating heart for something to happen? I was like that ship before my education began. Only I was without compass or sounding line and had no way of knowing how near the harbor was. Light, give me light, was the wordless cry of my soul. And the light of love shone on me in that very hour. I felt approaching footsteps. I stretched out my hand as I supposed to my mother Someone took it, and I was caught up and held close in the arms of her who had come to reveal all things to me and more than all things else to love me. Well, the coming of Anne Sullivan, who would teach Helen Keller words, was the turning point of six-year-old Helen's life. Well, the blind man in John 9 had a similar encounter as Helen, only This blind man's experience was with the true light of the world, Jesus Christ. Here was a man blind from birth. For years, he had sat in the streets begging. 
having never seen a sunset or a tree or his mother's face, a cast away from society. And then the day came that he heard approaching footsteps. It was Jesus who would reach out and heal him in his great compassion and love. And it was Jesus who would give this blind man not only physical sight, but spiritual sight and life as well. I would like us to consider this morning both the example of this blind man and the example of the Pharisees. The blind man as an example of coming to Jesus Christ in our need and responding in faith, and the Pharisees an example of self-righteous refusal to see your need and to receive the light Jesus gives. And then thirdly, we, we, we will look briefly at the cost of following Jesus Christ. Consider first of all then this blind man as an illustration of Christ's light shining in a a dark heart and of the response of faith. Verse 1 tells us that as the, the disciples see this man, they bring up a perplexing theological question. They ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This question shows us that the disciples had adopted the wrong theology of suffering that was very common in their day, they not only made a general connection between suffering and sin, which is true in the sense that the fall of Adam and Eve into sin ushered in all the fallenness and all the brokenness and all the suffering of this world. To that extent, in that general way, there is a connection between sin and suffering. But also, The disciples made the mistake that Job's friends made in thinking that there was always a direct connection between sin and suffering on an individual level. So that the more suffering someone has in his or her life, well, that must mean that person sinned more. And this is not a biblical theology. It's not true. And thus, for this blind man, they thought, to be afflicted in such a severe suffering, to be blind from birth, well, in their view, someone must have sinned big time. And their question is to Christ, who was it, the blind man or his parents? And we might think, what do you mean, the blind man? He was blind from birth. How could he have sinned? Well, in those days, it was commonly taught that a baby, a fetus in the womb, could commit sin while in the womb. And that, interesting, it's kicking indicated its sinful state. (laughs) Interesting old wives' tale, we might say. Or they thought if it wasn't the baby's sin, it would have had to have been the parent's sin. Which was it? Well, Jesus, of course, responds in verse 3, neither. No, he says, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The disciples were wrong in their theology, but Jesus points the disciples to the gracious work of God that Jesus is about to perform. Jesus is saying, God has a purpose in this man's blindness, that the work of God might be displayed. And in fact, in verses 4 and 5, he signals to the reader how this healing is to be understood. He says, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, Jesus is speaking about the night 
of his coming crucifixion, his death on the cross. And he knows that his ministry is leading to the cross. It's all leading up to that where he will accomplish redemption once and for all. But he also testifies to the nature of his purpose as the Messiah. Jesus is the light of the world, the one who reveals God the Father. And all the signs that Jesus did point to this dramatic truth. And the Gospel of John describes that for us in a powerful way. Jesus has just declared this, if we look back at chapter 8, at the Feast of Tabernacles, where at the temple each night, four huge torches, as light, as, as tall as the temple walls, were, were lit up and burned to illuminate the night, this great demonstration of light. And at that feast, in verse 12 of chapter 8, Jesus cries out and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, chapter 9 follows after that, and the healing of the blind man is a further tangible evidence of this truth of Jesus, the light of the world. And here then, we have this man, blind from birth, unable to carry out a normal job in that society, reduced to begging on the street, and certainly thought by most people to be very spiritually suspect. Here is this person in great need. And a person aware of his need, at least his physical need. And if you would have stopped to chat with this man as he sat there and asked him, uh, well, sir, is all well with your life? He would have looked at you, or he would have at least turned your way. He couldn't have seen you, and he would have said, are you crazy? How, how are things, is everything well with my life? Look at me, I'm blind. All is not well. Look at what my blindness has done to me. All was not well with him, but Jesus meets him and heals him in his need. And this man is given an entirely new life, both physically, being able to see now, but also, as the story unfolds, spiritually. He is given eyes to see Jesus Christ and who he is. Jesus shines on him, and he comes to confess at the end, Lord, I believe, and he worships Christ. Well, here's the spiritual application from the example of this blind man. Verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. What does Jesus mean by this phrase? He's saying, Until you are willing to come humbly to Jesus Christ with an awareness of your spiritual need, you will not receive spiritual sight. Jesus calls us to honestly face up to our helpless condition in sin, to confess to Him our sin and our need, and to trust in Him. And He promises to flood our souls with His light and His life. I'm sure that many of you have had the experience of being in a cave at one time or another in your life. I remember touring a cave as a boy with our family. I'm not sure which cave it was. It was a central Pennsylvania cave. And I don't know if they still do this in tours of caves, but in that particular cave, as part of the tour, the tour guide would have the group in a chamber, in a cavern, and the tour guide would turn out the lights just to give everyone a taste of complete darkness, complete absence of light. So our 
family is standing in the cave with this little tour group, and the guide is explaining that she's going to turn out the light, and she instructs everyone about this and warns them and tells them to remain still and to remain calm when the lights go out. And, and sure enough, she turns out the light. And in truth, it's pitch black. You can't even see your hand as you try to wave it in front of your face. And everyone is totally still and totally quiet, experiencing utter darkness. Of course, until my dad, who's always ready with a quip, speaks up and says, we hope you can find the light switch. And everyone, of course, laughs. But that sense of being in complete darkness is really an awesome thing. I remember as a boy not wanting to experience that more than a few seconds because it was terrifying in one sense. You really don't want it to to last very long. But that is the spiritual state of every one of us apart from the light of Jesus Christ shining into our hearts and opening our spiritually blind eyes to who He is and His great salvation. One of the great deceptions of our age is the misleading idea that salvation and enlightenment lie within your own heart in some way. Movies, TV shows, everybody always, these things always seem to point in that direction. Look inside and find the truth. All you need to do is look within. Get in touch with your inner self. Find the strength and the truth that is in you. Or live a good life and God will accept that. But ultimately, all of these human-centered philosophies only lead to greater darkness and greater despair. It would be like trying to convince this blind man, as he's sitting there blind, begging on the street, that he really sees, to say to him, don't you know that you really do see? No, that's not the case. He doesn't see. He's blind. Trying to tell him that instead of healing him, which Jesus did. No, Jesus is the only light of the world. It's not found within you or within me. And Jesus must shine the light of His glory, the light of His truth, the light of His word, the light of His grace into our hearts so that we begin to see. Jesus is the only one who can open blind eyes. And the call of the gospel is this. Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't look within. Look to Jesus Christ as Scripture reveals Him. Put your trust in in Jesus Christ alone. Put your trust in Jesus' death on the cross for sinners. Put your trust in His powerful resurrection from the dead. Put your trust in Him as your Savior and Lord and say to Him with this blind man, Lord, I believe. And then like this blind man, fall before Him and worship Him. And Jesus Christ will flood your life with His light. And so we've seen the example of this blind man. But secondly, let us look at the example of the Pharisees. The Pharisees illustrate the danger of increasing blindness because of self-righteousness. Increasing blindness because of a self-righteous attitude. What an interesting study it is to read through John chapter 9 and see the reaction of these religious leaders of the time. Wouldn't you think that they would be ecstatic? Wouldn't you think they would rejoice in this miracle? But no, that's not what we see at all. We see the opposite reaction. And we see these various interrogations. It's almost like they sit the man down and they shine the bright light on him and say, okay, you know, they're trying to get something out of him. 
but they don't like what they hear. And so they interrogate the man, and then they interrogate his parents, and his parents are afraid. Then they bring the man back, and they interrogate him again. And really, what we see is they don't want to admit this as a true miracle. And as we think about their reaction, we might ask, why? Why the vehement anger? Why the severe condescension? Why were they so upset? And the answer is, I believe, because they were totally convinced that they didn't need Jesus Christ, that he wasn't the light of the world, and that they themselves were the light for people to follow. They were the expert interpreters of Moses, they refer to him, and the law. And they were convinced that they could see. That's what Jesus says at the end. The problem is that uh, those who see will become blind. They claimed to see. And so their guilt remained. The problem with the Pharisees is that their religion was not a humble, trusting relationship with God of worship and love and true faith. But it was the dry bones. It had become the dry bones of outward show and appearance and going through external legalisms as a way to justify themselves. And their legalism never dealt with sin itself. It can't. Legalism can't erase our sin. We could have a thousand rules that we keep them all every day. And that's what the Pharisees had done. They had added all their external extra rules to what the Bible said. And they tried to keep all those and they maybe did it pretty well. But still, it didn't make them justified before God. Only Jesus Christ can cleanse us from our sin. And these leaders hated the idea of needing a Savior. Now, what's the application for you and for me from their example? We don't have to look far Do we? You don't need to be as extreme as the Pharisees to fall into the same kind of religious trap. Let me boil it down to this. Ask yourself, am I thinking that things are okay between myself and God without casting myself completely on Jesus Christ? Am I trying to carry that myself, to be good enough, to be wise enough, to be moral enough, Maybe you're not like the Pharisees in that extreme, but you just think that you're really not all that bad. You've been a good person for the most part all of your life. Why would you need a Savior? That sounds so radical. It makes your sin look so bad. Maybe you even go through some of the externals of religion. You go to church or you read your Bible and you try to be good, but in your heart, you know You have never trusted in Jesus Christ. You have never given him your life. You have not turned to him and to his cross. And you are not treasuring Jesus above all else. Well, if that's the description of your life, then the words Jesus speaks apply to you. You think you see, but you're really blind. And as he says, your guilt remains. The Pharisees, you know, have come down to us as the bad guys. Even that word, we hear that word and we think of it as bad. But I want you to realize that in that day, they were the well-respected spiritual leaders of the time. They were very earnest and serious and diligent about godliness. They were the moral ones in their society. But Jesus is getting to the heart of where they went wrong. And this is the same problem that many people still make. We fail to recognize our desperate 
spiritual need of a Savior. We want to somehow save ourselves. We think we can see, but we are blind. And it's very easy to trust in our own efforts like these Pharisees. That's just the way we all naturally tend to think. It's the natural mindset of the world. But we must watch that we don't go along with the crowd that is thinking that way. We had a clear example of going with the crowd last month. We spent a week in England visiting our daughter and her family who were over there for the summer with Ben's job. And one day we were seeing the sights in London, and we came up to Buckingham Palace, the palace where the queen dwells much of the year, and we got there around 11 a.m., and there were crowds gathering around, and that's where they have the famous changing of the guard, you know, that's so wonderful. And as we walked up, we weren't sure if they were doing it that day, but uh, we saw a large crowd gathering outside the gates where this changing of the guard takes place. And so we asked someone, is there going to be any changing of the guard today? Of course, it took me a while to find someone who could speak English to ask that. I, German, Japanese, all kinds of things. But finally, someone said, yes, 11.30. And so, oh, we all got into places and uh, people were just thronging everywhere, stationing themselves at every conceivable location, all around thronging the gates where the changing would take place, and then statues further up and steps, people hanging on to statues and taking every possible elevated place to behold this wonderful spectacle. And so we found our place and stood up on tiptoes, and I got my camera all set to go, and we waited, we waited, we waited, 11.31. 11.31. Well, I thought, wow, I thought the guard would be right on time, you know. And someone said, oh, I think I hear them over there. Oh, everybody crams their head. 11.35, 11.40, 11.45. And my daughter said, you know, John, I think we got the wrong day. It's every other day. And so we went off to have a picnic lunch a little ways on the ground. And sure enough, the crowd slowly dissipates <laughs> over the next half hour. It was the wrong day. We had all just followed the crowd How could hundreds of people be wrong? You know, they were. Don't feel too badly for us because we did see the changing of a guard at the castle of Windsor, which was really wonderful, but we didn't see it at Buckingham. But my point is this. Don't follow the crowd in thinking that you can see just fine. That's the mindset of the world. Even if hundreds and thousands and millions of people think that, and you hear it all the time, It's not what the Bible says. You need the light of Jesus to shine into your heart and to give you new life. And that brings me to my third point, the cost of following Christ, the cost of faith in Christ. Do you notice in this account the cost that this man had to count? He gained his sight. What a blessing to finally gain his sight. But he was immediately thrust into a hornet's nest of opposition to anyone who dared to say that Jesus was the Messiah. And it's interesting, the man doesn't even say he's the Messiah at first. He says he doesn't know who he is. He says he just knows that he was blind, but now he sees. At first he says he's a prophet. He says he doesn't know who he was. The parents don't want to say who they think he might have been. But the end result, they threw him out. They cast him out of the synagogue. He was excommunicated. He was disciplined in that sense. And that was no small thing in that society. That would have had grave social consequences for him. That would have had economic 
consequences for him. Of course, he was used to being blind, begging on the street, so he didn't know much else than that at this point. But it doesn't seem that the blind man really cares. This is the man, Jesus Christ, that gave him sight. And this blind man eventually is willing to stand up for him, even when he doesn't even really know who he is. And in fact, it's only after he's thrown out of the synagogue that Jesus seeks him out. And we see that tender scene. Jesus heard, verse 35, that they had thrown him out. And he goes and he finds him. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man responds, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus cryptically says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man's response, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. What a tender scene. Wasn't it clearly worth the cost for this man to be cast out, but to know the great salvation that Jesus Christ came to bring? to be given spiritual eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, that's a million times better than even having your physical sight restored, to know your Creator, your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul, the highest and best treasure of all. And I ask you, have you come to count the cost of trusting Jesus Christ? and giving Him your life. That's what repentance and faith is really all about, turning from your ways of sin, turning from your idols of this life, and even being willing to face opposition because of your faith in Christ. Maybe your peers will mock you. Certainly it will mean changes in the way you will live your life because you live according to God's Word. It may even bring division into your own family, which is such a painful thing. In fact, there was a news story this week about a 17-year-old girl in Ohio, maybe some of you saw this story, who fled to Florida because of threats to her life, because of her profession of faith in Christ. Rivka Berry immigrated to the U.S. from Sri Lanka with her family nine years ago, 17 years old now, almost 18. But she claims that four years ago, she became a Christian through the ministry of the Korean United Methodist Church in Columbus, Ohio. And she had to hide her Bible at home for fear that her parents would react and find it. And in fact, two years ago when her father discovered the book, The Purpose Driven Life, in her room, he had a serious discussion with her about the importance of retaining her Muslim faith. And now she's fled, and she claims that her father has discovered another Christian book and has threatened to kill her. And apparently a judge in Florida has ruled that she does not need to be returned to her home. But what a courageous 17-year-old. What a cost she is willing to count for her newfound faith in Christ. But apply that illustration to yourself. Are you willing to count the cost of faith in Christ? Probably that cost will be very much more mundane for most of us. But still, for each one of us, there's always a cost. Where does that cost hit home to you this week? Jesus calls every believer to follow him as his or her Lord. And if you find yourself unwilling to count the cost, maybe you need to back up and ask yourself, have my eyes ever been opened to the truth of Jesus Christ? If I'm not willing to count the cost, have I come to faith in Him? Have I put my faith 
holy in Jesus Christ. And if you have done that, you need to pray for the power of the Spirit, for boldness, for courage, for help, because we know that all of us are weak, except in the Lord. We find our strength. And if so, we will be able to join with this man born blind in saying, whoever should ask us, I was blind, but because of Jesus Christ, now I see. Amen. Father, thank you that even though the cost might be great, oh, the reward is so much greater. The delight of being in relationship to the living God. You offer us yourself. How can we say no to you? And yet in so many ways, we do that every week. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes more and more to behold the glory of Jesus Christ and so to be transformed, as your word says, as we behold him. We pray for those who may be here this morning who have never placed their faith in Jesus. We pray that you would give them eyes to see, open their eyes to who he is in all his love, in all his grace, in all his kindness, in forgiving sinners because of what he did on the cross. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ and pray that we would walk in the power of the gospel this week. We pray in Christ's name.